everybody, and welcome to another episode of How Come They Didn't Teach Me That in School. I'm Dr. Liz Dexter-Mazza here with Mariah Covington, a well-being counselor um, in schools. And we are so excited to come back this week and talk another episode about implicit bias. A few weeks ago, we started this conversation with our guest, um, special guest Sigourney, and her experiences of having her son in a mostly white school as an African-American child. And today we wanted to come back and talk about implicit bias in your classroom. What are the things that you as educators and teachers and school support staff counselors want to be aware of in your school and what specifically you can do to change any implicit bias that may be happening in your classrooms and to build a stronger sense of community among your students. So we are glad to hear, Mariah, glad to be back on here with you. Yes, so let's go. Too. Yeah, me too. This is an important topic and, you know, I'm glad that we're, we're coming back to it, like as, as we promised. Mm -hmm. So Mariah, why don't you start by talking to us about, on like, how do you define implicit bias and how do you see it showing up in schools? So implicit bias means you treat somebody preferably based on their race. That's, that's all it means. Um, it's a very simple definition. The way that we see it show up is but, but but like discipline records grades it adds to the achievement gap we know that students of color are suspended more they're um you know treated harshly for the same behaviors they'll they'll get more harsher penalties so that is what it looks like physically in a school um even like when they're called on for a a, a question they might, you know, not call on the students of color if it's a harder, you know, they might think, oh, well, they don't know or something like that. That's what it, it looks like. What it, and it translates into grades and disciplines and things like that. Right. And it's our tendency for people, for all of us as humans, to apply more positive attributions to people who are similar to us. And on the flip side, you may have more neutral or negative attributions or judgments about people who are different from you. We tend to um, move toward similarities and move away from differences. And we see that happening in classrooms and schools all the time when you start seeing the different cliques that develop or the social groups that develop. And for us to really be, um, be mindfully aware of how that's happening. And I think just one of the very first things that schools can be doing about this is that, so on the flip side, I think it's also really important to understand that like implicit bias also means that we apply more positive attributions to people who are similar to us, right? And so if we give more positive attributions to people who are similar to us, that means we may be more neutral or negative attributions or judgments to people who are different from us. And that's where you start seeing in schools where certain groups of kids who have more similarities, right? Not just common interests, but from physical attributes, backgrounds, also um, start to group together, right? And um, it can start to lead, lead to what we call this fundamental attribution error. And that's the tendency to believe that what people do reflects who they are rather than being explained by environmental context or situations. And that's a really important thing for us to think about. Some people engage in certain behaviors because of the environment that they are within, not because of who they are fundamentally at their core. And being able to understand that and address some of that with your students is gonna be a huge piece for us to look at in schools, especially as teachers who wanna take a special interest in different students. Um, yeah. 
and just to go back to what Mariah was saying, this idea, if you are a white or non-person of color um, teaching a classroom where there are mostly white kids and a couple BIPOC children um, or few black children, to recognize that you may have an implicit bias on how you are treating the students who are more similar to you versus the students who are more different than you. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, for me, I, sometimes I struggle with saying implicit bias because I, it's racism, right? Like, that's what it is. And, you know, we have to understand that we have been socialized to whatever age you are to believe that a certain, you know, group of people are better than the other great, whether, whether you, you know, acknowledge it or not, it's true. It's, it, it's in our, it's in the media. It's the way that people treat other people. We know that. Right. And so I, you know, I just want to call a spade a spade. I, it is. I love that you're calling it out as really yeah. what we often see implicit bias turn into, right? That's where it is most prevalent and relevant in our schools and in our time right now. Mm-hmm. And, 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 um, you know, we're at a place now where we're talking about it. But but that that's that's essentially what it is. It's racism. And everybody just needs to get on the page of, hey, we've all been exposed. And even even as a person of color, I might feel a certain way about people of color just because of all of the things that I've been taught and socialized to think as a, as a, from, from, you know, the time I was born. And that happens to everyone. And I don't want people to feel like, oh, like it's my fault or, but now it's your responsibility to acknowledge it. Right. It's become our natural shorthand to making quick judgments in ambiguous situations, right? When you're in those quick situations where you have to make a quick judgment, we look as this person similar to me or different from me. Should I, you know, would I be afraid or not afraid? And the fact is like, right, this is coming out in this current social context as racism. And it's that the onus is now on each individual person to decide and determine how can I be anti-racist? How can I recognize this, bring it into the spotlight and work to be different? Yeah. And it's a journey. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want anybody to feel like it's, it's this or that. It's a continuous continuum. Like even racism is a continuum. Like not every person who is a racist is like waving a flag, like going to certain rallies. It's not like that. Just, you know, it's a, it's a journey. So it takes time to unlearn all of the things that you have learned and you have to be, you know, exceptionally um, intentional about it. Yeah, and so let's talk about that, because when you and I were having a conversation earlier, you brought up some great examples, Mariah, of how there might be some implicit bias in the way we speak to each other or we speak to students in a classroom that we don't even realize we're being biased, because we have, many people tend to have what's called a colorblind approach, which really means that it's lack of awareness into how what you say impacts people of color differently than how it might impact a Caucasian person. And that's from a white privilege point of view. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had things, I think the thing that used to bug me is, and people don't say it now, but when people say they think they're complimenting me and they might say, oh, you speak well, you're so well-spoken. And a white person says that to me, that really bothers me. Cause I'm like, well, what does that mean? How do you expect me to speak? Right, it's actually, and it comes from like, oh, we're surprised you speak so differently from other Black people. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So, and then what about when black people say that to you? Or black people will say, oh, you sound like a white person. I've heard that mm-hmm. like a lot, a lot of my life or something like that. And I'm like, well, what is a black person? So and my mom would be like, tell them what is a black person supposed to sound like? Ask them what a black person supposed to sound like. Because I used to get made fun of about how I speak. Right. So everybody kind of has these expectations of what you look like. This is what you're supposed to sound like. And, you know, as a teacher, you had a, an as a teacher or somebody in a school, make sure that you're not complimenting your students. You think you're complimenting and then it's kind of, it feels backhanded to that person. Whether you meant to do it or not, that's how they feel. And that's why it's really, that is a great example of implicit bias. Because as I told you earlier, when we were talking about this, if some pe- people have said to me about my daughter, who's in elementary school, is she's so well-spoken. And I took that as a compliment right? That she's very articulate and she can carry on a lengthy, detailed, focused conversation. The interesting here is like, I didn't look at that as an implicit bias and it absolutely is because she's acting and speaking within the norm of society. And when they say that to you, it's as if it's outside the norm and unexpected. Mm -hmm. And so there's that bias that comes in that we're not even aware of. Um, And that's why I think being an anti-racist is really taking off the glasses and not using that colorblind approach that many people took decades ago, right? Because there is a different impact on when you're speaking to somebody and complimenting them on their expected behavior versus complimenting them because it's unexpected behavior. Yeah. And you have to be aware of that um, individually, especially in your classroom of students on how that comes across. Um, And so I think what I really think is important for us to be addressing and for classrooms to be thinking about is how am I as an individual teacher and then as a school, how are we working on decreasing the implicit bias amongst both the staff to the children or staff to staff and then students to students in the community of the school? How do we work with our school to be more anti-racist and decrease implicit bias. Yeah, and that, you know, I, I think it's, 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 like I said before, it's a continuum. You have to make sure that you're on a journey. Obviously, the big thing everybody's going to say, diversity training, right? That's what the big, you know, buzz is right now. Um, and I think, you know, having that awareness and having those conversations, obviously, that's a, that's a part of your training, right? That's what something that you want to do. But being uncomfortable, that is something that, everyone has to because like i don't know you know even when i went to diversity stuff when i worked at a very you know overwhelmingly white organization it was uncomfortable for me and i'm black and they was talking about me and i'm like oh well this is uncomfortable because everybody's staring at you you know those type of things so everyone is is not just the person that's not the person of color or the white person we're all uncomfortable and we ask our students to be uncomfortable all the time, right? Like we, uh, okay, you're not comfortable with math. You need to push yourself. You need to, you know, you can do it. And we say these things to our right, students. Right, come give a presentation in front of the class. Come right? read your That's story. Hard. Come mm-hmm. do a role play. Mm-hmm. Read aloud. Just even that. Mm-hmm. That's hard. Like no one wants to be put on blast like that. Mm-hmm. So just remember like you, you have to sit in being uncomfortable. We ask our, ask our students to do it. We should be able to do it ourselves as well. Absolutely. And to really push yourself to understand that. And, and I think for me, um, as an Asian woman who has 
really, I've benefited a lot from white privilege as an Asian woman. And there is definitely the experiences of racism I have had um, in my lifetime as an Asian woman. Um, that it's really important to be aware of what your own level of racism within and implicit biases first, right? So that you can be uncomfortable with that. And one of the ways that I think all teachers should start with this is go look at your own specific disciplinary records. Look at the grading in your class. Look at your interactions that you have with students throughout your school day. Even if you're just give, keeping a little self-monitoring chart on your desk, to notice how many compliments I give to each student. And do I give more to one set of students or versus another set of students? Look at that um, and have that idea as a first place and then look school-wide. What does the school disciplinary actions look like? But that's the first thing I think as an adult, we have to become aware of before, as we move into making changes. Yeah, yeah. and you could, yeah, you could even have someone else come into your class and do it and show that initiative. Like, oh, like I'm looking to, you know, see if I have some implicit bias. Can you come in my class and just pop in and see? Because sometimes they're doing that without you even knowing anyway. So mm -hmm. it's best to just put it up front. Right, and to get be able to be open and vulnerable with your colleagues to give that um, agreement that I welcome the feedback, right? To not take it as a judgment and I'm bad, it's that we all have this and how can we all lift each other up together and teach ourselves together so that we can improve the experiences of our students. Yeah. And not getting defensive um, when you do get someone says something to you. Like, it, I think it's hard, you know, sitting on the other side of, and even if somebody says something like that to me, it'd be hard to listen to that. Right. Like my first, your first knee jerk reaction is no, I'm not. No, I didn't. No, I wouldn't. I would never because I love my students. Why would I why would I do anything to hurt them? Right. Like, mm -hmm. and, I, and I, I believe that I believe that you all love your students, and that you all want your students to do well. Um, and it's, there's these things that just kind of just get in the way that we've been taught, you know, unfortunately. So, you know, just when you hear it, just be receptive to it and notice like that you are going to want to say your first reaction is no. And then just, you know, listen to them and say, okay, you know what, let me take this time to look at it and claim it and say, okay, now it's time for me to stop it. Now it's time for me to move to how do I stop myself from implicit bias? Mm -hmm. And one of the ways to take some of that feedback, you guys can't see me um, over the audio, but often I will put my hands out in an open position to the sides, call this a willingness position, willingness, willing hands, and look at it and say, I welcome the feedback. And practice saying, I welcome the feedback with your hands in an open, willing position. As the first, even that itself, having hands in open, willing position is a place of uncomfortability because it makes yourself vulnerable. And that is, I think, one of the first steps of what you behaviorally can do to start taking some of that feedback. Now, Mariah, you work in a very um, unique situation in that you are in a school that is 100% African-American students. And if I'm correct, it's 100% African-American staff or almost 100%, correct? Yeah, student facing is probably 100%. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what is that like? Um, do you, what do you see there from an implicit bias um, experience of having, you know, kind of all the same population. We say we give more positive attributions to people similar to us. Do you see that as a more comfortable place 
for your students versus being in a mixed race school? I think, I think it's pros and cons to both. I think that it's good that we have that African-American staff for our kids. A lot, of ki a lot of people that I know that I went to school with didn't have their first Black teacher until college, and they were Black. So there's something to be said about ex at least seeing that positive role model in our men. We have a lot of males in teacher roles and in the school, which is awesome. Black males, mm -hmm, absolutely, and children and families and all the things that they say that we're not right. So that's awesome to see that, and it's great. And I I love that my kids have that, and our parents love it too, because some of them you know just don't have that that structure at, at home. So it's great to see that. Um, and then on the flip side of it, I do see the implicit bias with the staff between the staff and the students, and it's more of a family like their family background and like a social economic status thing right so they might like and also another thing that happens too is that if i'm from the same neighborhoods as you and i made it out i might be harder on you because you can do it because i did right like i hear it all the time where they'll say i'm from the same hood i'm from the same process i'm from the same and you should be able to do it instead of taking in all the other things and just that person is different than you. Um, so I see that a lot of times too. And then with myself, um, with the engage, the level of engagement of the family, the, a, lot of, a lot of that bias happens there. So if the family is not answering or you know, being engaged in their learning, there's a lot of, oh, they don't care. You know, they're, they're this, they're that about that family, especially when there's like a lot of kids in one house. It's already, as soon as you find out that kid has like six and seven siblings, people start saying things about them automatically. Mm -hmm. So it brings me to my, one of my second um, or 15th, I've, hopefully these are many important points that we have. Um, this is where I think increasing empathy and empathic communication within your staff as a teacher and with your students becomes so critically important. Being able to learn about the lives, the backgrounds, and the community that your students live in and where they're coming from is so key. And like you said, you could be coming from different or same neighborhoods and same areas, um, but still be a, have a different experience than what your student is. Like maybe you were able to get out as the adult and move to high school and college, but maybe you didn't have as many um, difficulties as a child. Maybe you didn't have reading disabilities or learning disabilities like this student does. So being able to understand not only what the community experiences and then going even deeper with each of your students as to what their home life is like. There's a difference between like, yes, I grew up in that same neighborhood, but I didn't have six siblings and four extended family members living with me in my small house or apartment. And so there's a difference right there. Um, I know right now, like some of your kids aren't attending school, um, like they're online classes since you're completely virtual, because there's nine people trying to get on the same Wi-Fi server during the day and not everybody can go to school. Um, and so understanding some of those specific pieces about the backgrounds of each of your students is I think the first step and then moving to being able to increase your empathy and communication. And we know that there's been some research studies that show that once teachers are trained in empathy and understanding and context and cultural backgrounds, it can actually start to help decreasing suspension rates as well. 
So I wanna challenge all of you educators and teachers to start there by getting to know your students and understanding them a little bit better. Just one to show interest in them because I think that helps kids think that they're cared about um, and to feel connected. And then even more so, so that you can start working on your implicit bias. I remember years ago when my son was in second grade and it was in like November when we had his first um, parent-teacher conference. And during that meeting, talking to teacher, I had mentioned my daughter and she, her response was like, he has, a, he has his little sister? I had no idea. And to me, that was a communication that you don't know my son. He's been in class with you for three months and you haven't taken the time to get to know him, right? Which then became clear as the year went on that there was this implicit bias or just this negative judgment about him and his behavior and his um, disciplinary action in that classroom was much higher than the average student. And it was, but that one comment made it clear that she wasn't getting to know her student, yeah. all of her students equally. Yeah, and I and I take the time, and I know it's, it's it's harder when you have a lot of students, but I take the time and I call my parents, and I might call them in November. You know, hey, look, I just got around to it. You understand, you know. But I will talk to them and say, hey, I'm Miss Covington. I'm here to help your student, and this and that, just to get to know them, and even doing that with your, you can do it with your student as well. You know, just in a lunchroom, go and sit down and and talk to them and get to know them a little bit better. Yes, it's probably going to be a little awkward up front. Right. But then once you, you know, get into you just you, you become less awkward by doing things over and over and over again. That's just the way that you, you know, you practice, just like we tell our students to do. All right. We're all they matter, that you matter, that you matter enough for me to get to know you. Even if we're different, help me to understand more about you in that way. Yeah. Um, and that. And just taking the time, you know, to watch the implicit bias between students as well. Um, you know, I remember like growing up, I had like, you know, different, and we were all people of color, but it would be like the black kids versus Spanish kids versus Jamaican kids, like where I lived at and wa like watching that and calling it out. Like, I remember my teacher would be like, but you all are black. So I don't even know where this Dominican versus the Puerto Ricans versus the Blacks is, are coming from, right? So like, you also want to make sure you take that time to celebrate all diversity, all different people in the classes, even if you don't have that student in your class. So I know Indigenous People Day just came up, right? Mm -hmm. And most people do not have an Indigenous person in their class. They just, there's not a lot of them, right? So mm -hmm. you probably don't have them in the class. So even taking that time to say, let's celebrate these people, even though, even if they're not here, that's fine. We can celebrate them. Um, you know, Hispanic History Month, all of those, take, those time, take that time to make sure that you celebrate all different types of people in your class, whether they're there or not. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the fact is, you know, the, for another first step I'll say is like, do you still call it, do you call it Indigenous Peoples Day or do you and your school still call it Columbus Day? Because that has been changed across different states. Um, and that's another question and um, kind of marker for you to say, like, is there some implicit bias? Have we made changes in that way within our school of even what we call the national holiday now? And, and you know what? Don't call out that one person in the class that is of what that descent is. Like, just don't you know, it, it always feels like Black History Month. They always want the black, even with training, though they'll try to have the black person talk about 
implicit bias in the school, and then you're putting the onus on them again to then talk about something that's uncomfortable for them. Um, and with the students, it's the same way. I, you know, I, I felt like when I, you know, did have a more diverse school, a lot of the kids would expect me to know like certain things, and I'd be like, I went to the same school you did. I don't know. They don't teach you that. Like, I, I'm, I'm here with you, right? Like, I don't, I don't know. Um, so, you know, watch that as well. Like in between, like your tendency to make yourself feel comfortable by calling on somebody that you know is a person of color when you're talking about those type of things or trying to make them talk you know like i've seen that a lot too like let's not do that because you're already it's already uncomfortable for everybody so you know trying to placate yourself by doing that is something that could be harmful as well yeah absolutely and i want to also say i think from being an asian woman that i think it's also important that we don't just look at the implicit bias of black people brown people versus everyone else um, I grew up in a small town where there were three Asian families. And I remember also just getting the comments of being told I was the right minority at one time, that I had a advantage of applying to colleges and graduate schools because I was the right minority. Um, you know, when people had a question about anybody, anything that was Asian, it came <laughs> yeah. to me. Yeah, they were like, but, China, you're like, I'm not Chinese. Right, <laughs> or like, you know, when it came to like, food, like my mother was known because she cooked the best food because she cooked all Asian food, all Vietnamese food in that way. But most specifically, I remember like, this is like how aware I was of this. When I was in ninth grade, I remember having, getting some lecture from my white male social studies teacher. And he was talking something about an Asian country. We were watching a video and I remember he made a comment that, and he said, could you imagine eating rice every single day as part of all your meals? And I raised my hand and I said, I do that. We eat rice at dinner every night. And he just looked and said, oh, and then just moved on. Uh, like, and it, it's, right, now. right, it's uncomfortable right now. And I'm, I'm 45 years old now. And I was like, what, 15, 16, 15 then? So 30 years later, that still sits with me. Mm-hmm. And that's implicit bias as well. You know, in a, and I grew up in a town where I very much tried to fall on the white side um, of things because that was the greater cultural norm there. Um, and I still was an outsider. So I think those are important pieces to really understand different cultures, but, and then understand them without pigeonholing, oh, if this person's Asian, they must be just like this, or if this person's black, they must be just like that. Get to know each and every one of your students. Um, and the other thing I'll say is important as a teacher, I think it's really important that you mindfully work on developing cross-group friendships um, in your own life. Look at who your friends are. Do you have a diverse social network of friends? And then also creating that um, diversity in your classroom and cultivating cross-group friendships. Um, as well as starting to kind of address some of that and doing that very specifically. Yeah, yeah, that's something that you have to do intentionally as well, because people just feel comfortable with people who look like them, right? So it's easy to mm -hmm. just fall into that. Um, you know, this has been one of those conversations where I, I again, feel like <laughs> it's not done yet. Um, and at some point, I would love to have, you know, a teacher come on the show 
and talk about, mm-hmm. you know, pers- I, I prefer a person that is not of color to come on the show that work with students who are of color and how they work through their own mm-hmm. implicit bias. Um, you know, Liz, I know this is, this is a short one, um, but I, I feel like we just got so much jam packed in this little, little bit of time. Mm-hmm. I know. So here, let me let us get wrapped up with here. I want a couple of comments I want to make that I think for us and we'll come back again in a third episode and talk about it more. But um, we know that from social emotional learning, by actively teaching perspective taking and empathy um, to students, that's the number one way to start not to start and stop, but to start the teaching of being an anti-racist and decreasing implicit bias. So what I want our listeners, each of you to do, is I want you to ask yourself these questions. Does your school address or foster cross-cultural friendships, right? Do you actively do that in your classroom? Do you see that actively happening in your school? And do you explicitly teach empathy and perspective taking, right? In the DBT Steps A curriculum, we teach Um, perspective taking through the skill of dialectical thinking. We teach validation and empathy in our interpersonal effectiveness skills. What are you doing specifically and directly to address those first two skills? And if you can start there, you can then keep adding onto that within your classroom. And the key is that we just don't do it in one grade and then no other grades. We have to be doing it every year. So it's part of the school community and culture. Yeah. And my my lasting thing would be like, it's, it's a journey it's a journey, right? Like, it's not like you're, it's a continuum. Just like racism is a continuum, being anti-racist is a continuum, right? Like, do you start at one spot and there, you know, it takes time. We've all learned all these things and it takes a long time to unlearn them, right? So just making it intentional every single day of what, where you're going to fall at in that continuum and continue to learn and read and, and talk to people cross-culturally and, and, you know, just listen to podcasts and all of those things that can help you, um, you know, be anti-racist and, and stop the implicit bias in your school. So um, just by listening to this, because as soon as you see implicit bias, some people have been like, eh, next episode. <laughs> so just even by listening to this, you're taking a step into in that journey and that continuum of being anti-racist. So absolutely. All right. Thank you, friends, for joining us. Um, We are so excited to have more episodes coming for you. If you like what you heard today, please take a screenshot, share it with your friends, send um, this episode to your friends for them to listen to, Um, rate us and give us some feedback. And then you can follow us on Instagram at How Come They Didn't Podcast. Send us questions on that page, direct message us, or you can email us at howcomethedidn'tpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to hanging out with you for our next episode. All right. Bye, guys. Thanks.